Thank you for joining us today at Miniature Wargaming Labs. I am James, and today I am joined by John of Cursed Captains Games, the designer of Captaincy, first and second edition, um, a combat game in the Age of Sail. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. It's a, a usually nice day out here. <laughs> well, you know, I... Lately, I'm on a string of interviewing people from my uh, home state of California. So that's one thing I could always depend on, the nice weather. We usually, well, we, for me, nice includes a half day of fog. If I, if I don't see that, I'm a little sad. Are, are you north uh, or south? North. Oh, okay. I was north San Diego. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, I'll be going to uh, San Diego Historicals soon and probably bringing captaincy there with me oh outstanding i have i have a number of friends in san diego okay so before we get started for anyone who can't stand to listen to more than five minutes of a podcast why don't you go ahead and give us like the 30 second elevator pitch on what captaincy is captaincy is a tactical age of sale game where each player usually operates one ship. With experience, you can operate more. It's part of a, a genre that's very old in gaming, but I have really made an effort to sort of re-examine every idea in the Age of Sail game and, and come up with something that is very different. And it's largely rooted on what we know about the experience of sailing both in a con the contemporary world, of course, people still sail as a hobby, but it's really rooted in reports and journals written by uh, the men who actually fought in the Age of Sail. So it's, a, uh, it's been described as a regatta game. It's a game about maneuver, position, and the wind, and uh, it's become, I think, a very tense and competitive game. You know, um, I have to admit, in, when I was in high school in San Diego, um, I got big into reading about Napoleonic warfare. And I read some books on um, the uh, British fleets. And they said whenever they bought uh, a captain or an admiral for review, like if anyone lost a battle, I guess they said the first question they always asked was, did you have the wind gauge? Or um, I forget what the term was. But that weather really, the weather gauge. Did you have the weather gauge? And when I was reading your rules, I really got the sense that the importance of like was translated into the game. Like when I was reading rules, like I remember reading like examples um, that would cap that would be captured in this rule set of like how captains were out there. So I, I know most people now probably think like master and commander. Um, was that the sense you were going for? Well, I think that a lot of our experience of operating a vehicle is from driving a car. And uh, there's a lot of naval games of the age of sail have shown some elementary lessons like you, you know, you can't sail forward if you're facing into the wind. So it's sort of like you have a car, but it doesn't go in one direction. And I really wanted to suggest that a sailing ship is a bit more like a kite. It's essentially half of it is in the water and the, you know, the motor, so to speak, is a kite that's up in the wind. And if, if you think about flying a kite instead of driving a car, you're always on kind of a tangent to the wind. Um, and it, it can move in a very unpredictable way. And so I've tried to capture that by uh, having a dice sorting mechanic. So if, if you roll, roll a bunch of dice, you put them in a certain order, and if they're high dice, they carry you farther, but they also tend to push you off the wind just a bit. So ultimately, your path is going to be a bit diagonal. It's kind of a fun mechanic. Actually modeling how sailing works is so intense that it's really a challenge even with contemporary computers. If somebody wants to like design an ultimate sailing vessel for the America's Cup or something like that is very hard to model because you're in two different fluid mediums at once. So um, to come back to a game that is relatively approachable and fun, um, I, I 
used a kind of dice rolling and sorting mechanic to make sort of a metaphor for controlling the wind. Uh, and I think that's something that the game has achieved, that it feels more like you're negotiating with the wind rather than you're just going exactly in the way you turn the wheel, which I think is more, um, more like what we experience today with a land vehicle. Yeah. I don't know All if right. I answered the question. No, you know, we're going to get a little bit more into the mechanics later, but to that discussion right there brings what got, where did you start with miniature wargaming and how that lead you into designing a game like captaincy? Well, I was originally involved in, um, as a kid, I got Avalon Hill games and uh, war games. And I think that's still a big influence for me is, um, like looking at, at new material from companies like GMT. And I got into role-playing games, and I was a freelancer and kind of a, um, a associate person with Chaosium Games for, for quite a while. Uh, so that was where I first had publication. And then at some point, I think at a convention, I played the Bella Antiquitatis, which is still one of my very favorite games ever. And I just became drawn in by the idea of a game where you create the, you know, you, you create the models, you create the scenery, or not create, but you sort of assemble and paint, um, rather than having a board that came out of a box. So that grabbed my attention artistically. Um, like this is sort of a canvas that you can put anything on. So I think I became involved with miniatures after DPA. And, um, it, it just made me interested in the form and thinking about the form. Um, at one point, there was an Age of Sail game that uh, I'm going to leave unmentioned that a bunch of friends bought uh, ships for, and then in playing the game, it didn't work out as hoped. And so I think like many games that started with a process of uh, critique and dissatisfaction and house rules, like, oh, it should work this way, it should work that way. Eventually, it became a totally different animal. Uh, so that's how Captaincy began with um, a mixture, a, a, a curiosity and wanting to make something better, kind of pushing each other forward. Now, how many games would you play at the same time? So I have set up my YouTube channel and the podcast around targeting people that play like three or more games so was it always like you found age of sale and you just stuck with that or do you cover the entire waterfront so to say when you say at the same time do you mean like invested in as a painter and collector well um not liquidating your collection so i i have a friend who will play multiple games but it's like buy into the miniatures buy the rule books play it for a while and it'll have like seven different games in various stages but at some point one of those will be liquidated like removed so where i never get rid of my stuff because yeah, it might be a I day did. i come back um i i think i'm a hoarder so you know i <laughs> um i get a bunch of different things i become interested a while ago i became really interested in uh, covering the, the Burma campaign in World War II and uh, collecting figures for the Indian Army and, of course, for the Japanese. Um, so I get interested in a, a rule set or a period, and my, my attention easily shifts, and I'm lucky to have space for it and uh, friends to play games with. So I have a bunch of games. The... the Age of Sail became a focus for, and uh, and uh, it became a lot of work to create a game that that did what I wanted it to do, that had the had the some historical grounding in it. So uh, it's it's not that I play that kind of game all the time, but I wound up reading a lot about it. So have you ever do you have you made other games besides an Age of Sail one, or is that the one you made? I, I did role-playing supplements for Chaosium. Okay. So I did uh, 
supplements for Pendragon and Call of Cthulhu um, or other Chaosium games. I, so I'll, I'll just let you know my wife uh, has become a, a fan. So she's assembled a little group interested in Cthulhu. So I, I left RPG games behind, but my wife's gotten into that and she was dissatisfied with D&D. So she started pull, pushing into the Cthulhu stuff. So I'll, uh, I'll let her know about this one. Okay, so before we get sidetracked here, um, you set up a Captaincy first edition. Why the move to second edition? Um, and this will play into the idea of um, how do the mechanics of your game work, such as round structure um, or turn sequence, and what kind of dice um, are used? I think one of the simplest answers is that uh, Captaincy First Edition presented a lot of what I feel is new thinking about the topic, and um, I, I it didn't make much of a splash, and I didn't, uh, I you know I I didn't splash it very much. I just kind of released it anonymously, but I heard from some people who really liked it, and that uh, that inspired me to to persist, especially during pandemic when there was a lot of time to uh, persist in revising it. I think for anybody who saw the first edition, the, the main thing that has changed, or a, an important thing that has changed is that ships can serve momentum more. So there's a little, initially I didn't have a track where you kept track of, track of speed. It was a, a dice interaction, but now uh, there's a little more inertia, and it makes the ships feel more real. It's a small difference, but um, one one wants them to feel like they're kind of real objects and not like sort of a formula or a, a dice idea. Um, the other thing that's different is the sequence of the game. So it had been a game where you essentially alternate movement. I move one ship, you move one ship. Uh, and there's there's other considerations, but it, it was too easy still for the person moving last, no matter how I settled with the sequence of play, to get a tremendous advantage. And I think that's a problem in first edition captaincy and in, in many other tactical games. So at the suggestion of uh, my friend Ed Allen, who's a play tester for me and a miniatures, um, great miniatures enthusiast in this area, I went more toward a phase sequence of play that you see in games like Starfleet Battles, or the more modern version of it would be in Talon or Car Wars, where you move a little bit, like you move like two inches at a time, and then the other side moves about two inches at a time, and things, the moving vehicles respond to each other better. So sequence of play has been fixed, so I just think it's a much more fun game, and much less of a game where somebody gets owned very easily. I mean, it's become much more even and balanced. Well, that that idea for balance, because um, it's not a huge rule book. Like, when I think of um, some of these games, because I think a lot of my thoughts on, especially historical naval action is probably when I was um, younger, and first getting into wargaming, you go into the game store and there were guys playing ship battles and it's like calculating the pitch and the roll and the yaw of the ship and what angles the cannons were at. And like, that looks like too much. So, but you don't have the big book there. So do you see this as a flavor-based game where you're trying to capture the flavor of the period, like a beer and pretzel game for friends? Or do you see this as being a potential tournament game? It's uh, it's not a beer and pretzels game. It's a wine and cheese game. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a little bit more hefty, I think, than what beer and pretzels means. And I I did design it to accommodate <clears throat> tournament play if somebody wants to do that. It's written in a tournament style because I admire that kind of writing, where you know you, you really have to legislate. You really have to make it clear. Hey, somebody argues, and they will how everything works. I, I think in terms of its weight as a game, um, 
again, it's extremely hard to make a mathematical model of sailing, even a computer-assisted one. So this is sort of like an analog. It's what board game designers call design for effect. I think that the rolling and sorting dice and some other aspects of the game give you the decisions about whether you persist on a certain course or whether you try to remedy it that I think are fun and that I think are uh, evocative. But um, it's it's not a, a real model in that sense that you would have to calculate the pitch of the ship. A lot of that stuff is abstracted. So, right. Um, okay, yeah. so do you imagine this as on the range between a simulation and more the general cinematic feel? Um, where do you think your game lands in that? Um, well, I simulation is a very important idea for me because when I, I don't know what to do, I want to go back to the source that we're adapting. And that was also true in Chaosium, too, because we were always adapting a, a literary source like H.P. Lovecraft for Cthulhu or Thomas Mallory for Pendragon. We always want to go back to the book and have things work the way they seem to in the source material. So in in that sense, even if I'm simplifying or, or sort of using dice or cards to stand for something else, it's uh, I think you need to to find the game in the subject. And so I don't I I. I consider that a kind of simulation. I don't really make a distinction between more fun game in a simulation. Uh, I think it's I think it's a fun game. It is a fun game. And um, sorry, I think I've lost track of the thrust of your question, where it is on the scale of simulation to... Um, well, you know, when I was looking through the rules on it, and the way even you led into this interview of like, it's a ship versus a ship. If you want to play more ships, you can. But that makes me think of the difference between classic Battletech and Alpha Strike. Where classic Battletech, you had maybe two mechs on two mechs, but you're doing everything from counting like how much damage on the left fist, how much damage mm -hmm. on like the right upper torso. Where Alpha Strike was like, did he take damage or not? And so when I was reading your rules, like the environmental effects of the movement of the ocean and the wind, those two fluids you were talking about, that really comes across. And, you know, the challenge of how do I work in these two mediums to get my, my cannons in the right position? Cause like I'm, I'm fighting a lot of other things in the environment than just the opponent where I fail. Some other sailing games by other companies are more about, I could swap out the ship for anything else. It could be on land. I'm driving slowly turning tanks around a battlefield. Yeah. But that yeah, wasn't they the feel. feel like that. Yeah. So that's what I was noticing in yours is like um in any of the period, it's like you're fighting the weather. You're fighting the nature too in order to get in the right position. That's what I was trying to get between simulation and generality. Yeah. Um I I guess I can say other games that I think are in the in the same zone or that I think are comparable. As I mentioned, I became involved in miniatures because of DBA, Development Antiquitatis, and that's a very simple game. It's kind of work to learn it, um, but you know a lot of people play it, and I think the, the current version, uh, version three, resolves in about an hour. And it's dispensed with, I mean, formerly the designer of DBA, the late Phil Barker, made very intricate games for ancients where you had to keep track of every guy dying in a formation and how, how much fear they had and how much fatigue they had. And he boiled that down to you make a competitive die roll and if you lose, your guys back up or they die. Because that's all the general up on the hill knows is that that formation is retreating or advancing. So he, he boiled things down to retreat and advance uh, in a very compelling way. So I 
am inspired to try to do something similar, to try to find the game mechanics that kind of get to the crux of uh, of what was the problem for the commander and not to model everything that a commander probably wouldn't have been thinking of. I mean, in, um, there, are, there are many air and, and probably naval games, too, that are extremely intricate. Uh, they deal with things that, that the commander of, let's say, a ship or a squadron of aircraft isn't thinking about the individual pitch of, of you know, six different aircraft. Um, he, or maybe in some cases she, is thinking about uh, on, a, on a more general level, like are we getting to the right point or not? So I, I try to reach that. I try to I try to understand the complexities and, and then uh, sift through them to find um, the the simplest expression of them. Well, and when you I when hope you I've succeeded. Yeah. Now, when you designed this game, how many models were did you imagine each person would have in it? I always wanted, so many of the games that, that we're talking about, other Age of Sail games, where maybe sometimes the ships kind of move around like tanks, as you say, but, I mean, they may be designed to cover a very large battle, uh, like Trafalgar. I mean, everybody wants to their game to cover Trafalgar, where you have you know, 40 or 50 ships on a side. There were even bigger ones where you had 100 ships. Uh, meeting each other. Um, so I, I'm not contesting that area. I'm trying to depict the action, which is an encounter between a few vessels, often a cruising vessel like a frigate. Um, that's what you see in a film like Master and Commander, and that's what you see in uh, the naval fiction that people like Patrick O'Brien or C.S. Forrester um, it's what you see in stories about pirates. So I really felt that that's the topic of the game. And if somebody wants to use it to play Trafalgar, they're, they're going to need a big table and, you know, some, some work to do that. I mean, it's possible, but um, I was never trying to make a game about fleets, uh, just a game about hundreds, you know, innumerable small skirmishes between where there's maybe four on a side at most. All right. Um, that'll lead us in the question of how much can you customize your ship? Because thinking back to like um, Master and Commander, some captains spent more time um, drilling their uh, weapons crews versus other ships. So that would create like... So I'm trying to imagine, can you modify... Uh, the speed, the agility, the combat power of a ship. Because I can imagine you can run scenarios of where one player might have two ships, but to maintain balance, they're not as good as like the one super-powered ship. Well, it's it's not a, a build optimization game um, because I I wanted it to feel more like I think the experience of military command is more often that you're you're given this equipment and, and these uh, these people and you have to figure out what to do with them. So a, a lot of effort has gone into depicting the performance envelope of you know, many different dozens of different ships from the age of sail as far as I can reconstruct it. And then the player's challenge is to is to make that vehicle work. It has been successful, I would say, on Kickstarter, so there will probably be a sequel where you have cards that reflect different uh, different naval factions' preferred tactics and some of their strengths and weaknesses, which would be a, a bit more like that tactical variation that's popular in a lot of miniatures games. Like, you know, I, I have my Warhammer Dwarves, but, you know, here they have this they have they have a special hammer. They have a special card or whatever. Um, I was more, I think, following. Uh, I, I think one miniatures game that is a strong model for me is Check Your Six, um, where I I feel like it's it's a detailed yet fun and playable, and it really.
different aircraft perform differently. So in Check Your Sticks, um, I most often play the Vietnam era version of it. You know, your your challenge is to see what you can do with a MiG to defeat a Phantom that's more heavily armed. Um, and so that uh, it, it's pretty much all in the game and and not in building forces ahead. There is a um, uh, a point balance system, so and also a campaign system. So you're making a decision about what ships you have, and you're also making a decision about what roles they have, whether they're bring cargo or whether they're trying to disrupt cargo or just out to fight. And that's an important decision. Well, one of the things I was interested is um, I've I've never had a big interest in Age of Sail games. But I have family members who have no interest in miniatures, but they love the Age of Sail. Like they buy the modeling kits, like the, the big ones, and they buy the little ships in the bottles and build the ships. So I saw this as a chance of like, all right, hey, you like Age of Sail. Here's some ships. Let's, let's play a game with it. And then they can regale me with stories from the various authors that you mentioned. But with a, acquiring a new game and a new system, what's the play area? What's the commitment? Like, so I would go to like one of my relatives' house and I s- unroll the mat. How big of a space will I need to play this game? I've uh, uh, made it on a uh, a variable scale. So basically, you you decide since there's many ship scales. There's essentially one seven hundred. Um, which I think would be Black Seas. There's 28-millimeter scale. I think Iron and Oak is really a game for 28-millimeter figures on, on board big ships, unless I'm mistaken. Um, uh, that's I, Blood I, and I, Plunder. I say this about these, <laughs> Blood and Plunder, okay. I, I say oh. this about these games because I haven't really looked at new sailing games while I've been looking at this because I don't want to you know, wind up being influenced one way or another. But anyway... Um, it's scale agnostic, so you you decide. It's as a practical matter, it's probably got to be a, about a yard square, um, and up to if you use a bigger scale, such as for warlords, uh, ship range, or black seas. I think that would be uh, forty-eight inches square. So it's not um, it's not much of a space hog, uh, but it's also it's scaled if you use, for example, the ships made by Rod Langton, which are very beautiful, one twelve hundred scale, then your playing area would be about a meter square. Um, and I want to say that uh, it's, it's definitely a war game. It's definitely a, a miniatures game. So <clears throat> it would take some getting used to for someone who didn't know the form. But working with the artist and layout person who is basically a children's book illustrator. Um, I think together, and but especially with her help, Annette Wood, um, we've created a book that looks, to me, kind of bright and friendly. Um, doesn't have the aesthetic of a lot of other games. So I think it may have reach outside of the game world. All right. Now, is there a campaign feature? this game like um scenarios that you can link together in a campaign um trying to recapture some of the um i don't know uh like uh the british versus the french and the napoleonic like rolling down a coast trying to attrite uh the different forces and merchant ships Is, is there a campaign feature linking different scenarios together there's a scenario generator and there's a, a fairly light, but I think interesting campaign system. <clears throat> if you want to have a series of scenarios, it's not a map campaign. So it's more of a, um, a resource management campaign where you're, you're trying to accrue victory points. Um, but there's, it, it basically forces on you attention between commercial shipping and military ships. So to keep the campaign going, you, your commercial fleet, your cargo fleet has to be going on. Um, 
but uh, to not have them be poached, you have to have warships out there. And so that's that's the idea behind the campaign system, um, which is, uh, again, it's it's a campaign about scorekeeping and commitment. Uh, it's more abstract than a map campaign. It does reflect the purpose of Napoleon's uh, frigate fleet after Trafalgar was to cut down British shipping and enforce the continental system. So he, he basically knew he was not going to beat Britain in a naval battle, um, but he hoped that by having sort of a, the equivalent of a U-boat fleet or a destroyer fleet, he would uh, isolate them economically. And that was a much more successful initiative uh, on the French part, if not ultimately successful. So I think the game does reflect that, that it's um, the struggle between uh, the the freighter and the ship hunter and the ship hunter hunter. Let me ask you, so we keep saying age of sail, but there are different periods of the age of sail, different loadouts. So everyone thinks like Napoleonic or pirates in the Caribbean. Um, so is this game designed to be like a general purpose age of sail or is there a way to skew it to the different eras of like you know the the anglo-dutch the anglo-french fights it's meant to show the uh essentially the entire period from the mid-16th century and uh, uh basically the era of the galleon up to the early 19th century which would be the napoleonic wars um i to me, the Napoleonic Wars is the, the very end of the period, and it's also a very imbalanced fight because by that point, most navies could not compete with Britain. But if you roll back the clock, even to the Seven Years' War, those conflicts were much more um, unpredictable. So uh, it does show that that's, that's why it's the length of rules that it is. There, there is a shorter version, Captaincy, or, sorry, Enterprise, which is a, a free giveaway version that I'm working on right now, which is just about Napoleonic frigate warfare. So it's just about the master and commander topic. But the reason the rules are have the scope that they do is to show the whole range and how technology changed from the Galleon period to you know the very end, just before steam. All right, I, I think that's when I was when I was big into reading about this period. You see that arms race like you did prior to World War One, like with the for the entry of the dreadnought. This idea of like how how high can we make this ship and how many lines of guns can we stack on top of each other before this thing sinks? Yeah, um, there were several periods like that, and the uh, people made ships like the Vasa or the Mary Rose that collapsed under their own weight in the, um, largely in the 17th century. Beginning toward the end of the 17th century, uh, you know, one, of, one of the important innovations that people gain is calculus that they've learned from Newton and Leibniz. So there's a little bit better ability to, I mean, that along with improvements in other kinds of scientific modeling people become a little bit better to predict the buoyancy of a ship in relation to its load. But before that, uh, in the 17th century, there was a, a crazy arm race where people were just building these ships that, that totally looked like they come from Games Workshop. They've got <laughs> cannons bristling out of every, you know, every, every foot of the ship has a cannon sticking out of it. And there are all these ornate, crazy designs on them. They're, they're beautiful ships. That's the Dutch Wars, basically. Uh, and the beginning of the Anglo-French Wars. And so I, uh, captaincy is totally for somebody who wants to play in that period and have those ships work the way they did, um, which is a challenge also because you don't want to make them unplayably bad compared to the later and better design ships. So uh, I've tried to make it so that there's, there's an interesting tactical problem and a different one for the different eras. Of the age of sale. I was, 
I was thinking about uh, your rule set just now and thinking, you know what, we can do the uh, what if on the uh, Great Lakes armadas that never actually fought each other <laughs> when they built these giant sailing ships <laughs> with no ocean. Well, there were conflicts on the Great Lakes, though, and on Lake Champlain also. So, yeah, I think it would work for that. It would work for any... It doesn't have any big scale of conflict that it requires. So, uh, you know, uh, fights in the Caribbean, um, but also uh, even even fights with very small ships like um, Ark or a schooner or something like that is in, intended in this effort to sort of model the whole period at every scale. Well, that, that leads me to the question because I was thinking about since you made this during the pandemic, is there a co-op or a solo play feature? And I know that might be kind of difficult given like the amount of uh, effort you've put into modeling um, the weather conditions and the, the natural environment. But I was thinking something of um, attacking physical land installations. Yeah, I think you could... Um, I, some of the people who really liked the game from the first edition we're enjoying it just as like the challenge of getting a ship around a rock. Like if, if the ship <laughs> has to go on the windward side of an island. I appreciate uh, that. You wrote that in the rule book. <laughs> just yeah, practice sailing yeah. this around a rock. <laughs> well, in I, I wanted to make a game where you're scared when you get close to land. Um, I had a, a neat experience, if I can say briefly. I, uh, I took a, a freighter as a passenger from Philadelphia to Antwerp. You can sign on freighters as a passenger uh, these days, and I never, I didn't, didn't ever really want to be on a cruise ship, but I was scared a lot while we were out in the ocean. I mean, I, uh, you know, it's, it's scary. It's an amazing thing to be in the Atlantic, and if the storm comes up, the ship will really bang around. Um, but the the crew of the ship were not scared. When we got near land, and we were going into the shelled estuary near Antwerp. I could see them, they were like biting their nails and smoking five cigarettes and whatever, because that's when the ship dies, when it gets close to land and loses control. So that is a theme in captaincy, and I think it, it is fun to see how close you can get to an island without without losing control. That's the, the problematic of the game is uh, propulsion versus having control over propulsion. I would like to make a sort of ghost ship that works automatically that you can solo against, but that's that's for another day. Um, it's not included in the current rules. All right, so we keep touching on this. What are your plans for expanding the game into the future? Uh, the I have a bunch of, of notes that I didn't, and, you know, trials of different rules and things that I didn't put into the current book. And partly, you know, many games like the ones we play are kind of already too much for some customers. And you'd want to add features, but you don't want the thing to have so much feature creep and complexity that it's, it's off-putting. So I just did the sailing part, but I would like to deal with Ord Travel so that you can really cover the Renaissance battles like Lepanto, uh, where many of the ships are under oars. In fact, galley warfare continued um, almost into the into the 18th century. So I would that's one area of expansion. Um, another is maybe uh, some cards that uh, break the rules a little bit to illustrate different uh, tactics or doctrines that different. Countries had, and um, the third area expansion is to have a campaign where the campaign is taking place within a large naval battle. So your ships are your ships are a squadron, and they're going to encounter enemy squadrons. And then, how well do they prevail and put themselves together before they have to encounter the next squadron? Because the way these things really fought in the big battles, there are two lines coming toward each other, like two parades intersecting. So like I, I have the 
the Abraham Lincoln Parade and somebody else has the Columbus Day Parade and they're coming to the same intersection. So how do they pass each other and how do they survive fire? So I wanted to make a campaign that, that shows the experience of a big battle without requiring people to have all the ships of a big battle at once, like break it down into scenarios. That's another thing that we hope to do in well, that, that would make your game an excellent teaching tool, because if I remember right, that's what made the British so dominant, was their ability to conduct a well-organized parade on ships. like Their ability to like stay in formation, hold formation, and concentrate firepower better than any other fleet. They, uh, in, the, in the late period, in the Napoleonic period, they had a much better rate of fire. Um, they had a good signaling system. They tended to stay together. They tended to be able to get to windward to have the weather gauge, which is an advantage in this game as it is in you know, almost any age of sail game. Um, and uh, uh, at the same time, if we focus on the experience of the captain, you know, so, some of their ships got blown up or burned down. So um, the focus will still be on like the attritional warfare of these floating towns, each of which can have more than 500 people inside of them firing cannons at each other. So there will, the focus will still be more on that, that experience of being under siege. Well, at this point, let's talk about how does someone acquire this game? So we'll just come out and say, when this podcast comes out, there'll be 10 days left on your Kickstarter. So well, I'm going into Kickstarter. How do I find your game? Um, it's Captaincy, second edition, or just Captaincy. I think I don't think anybody's out there with a exactly competing title. So I think that should do it. If um, you hear me rustling around this, I'm, I'm on your Kickstarter right now. So there's no other, nothing else called captaincy. So it's the only result that comes up. There you but, go. Uh, um, and you've already, already blown through your goals. <laughs> you, yeah. You've uh, already blown through your goals, so you're going to make it. But what are the different yeah. levels people can buy at? Oh, um, essentially the, the basic level. So uh, captaincy first and now captaincy second edition is... Uh, something you get from Wargame Vault, which I, I think many miniatures players know Wargame Vault, but it's it's a cousin to drive through RPG. They're all owned by the same company. So essentially when you go to Wargame Vault, you get either a PDF of a rule book and um, maybe somebody self-published that thing or something from them. But you get either the PDF or you get a print on demand. Uh, and basically, the, the Kickstarter offers increasing levels of um, just getting the, the print-on-demand and the PDF or uh, getting your name put in it as a contributor and uh, getting some cards which help you show that you're giving the ship orders during the battle. Uh, they're not really necessary, but they're kind of a nice, that's a, a bonus that we put in there. So. And the ultimate level is that you get your name, you get the cards, and you get a hardback. Um, that one we ship to you. Otherwise, when you order, and this is how uh, crowdfunding fulfillment often works through uh, Wargame Vault and drive through um, you're giving some money to the Kickstarter, and then in return for that, you're getting a link to buy those things at cost. So you get the wholesale cost and you pay the shipping as well, uh, rather than me calculating them. So that's essentially how it works. And then after the Kickstarter, you'll just buy those things at a slightly higher price on Wargame Vault. And it will still be the same deal that you're getting either um, or print-on-demand book or both. OK. Um, in that case, I, I always like asking people who do Kickstarter, why did you go the Kickstarter route? Why not just put it on Wargames Vault and walk away? Uh, I, I did that the first time, and it didn't attract nearly as much attention. Um, and I I splurged on getting um, uh, a, 
a different kind of book design this time that I think is more um, appealing to the, I mean, I like the way old Captain Sea worked too, but I really wanted to make something that looked different. And so that, that cost me some money up front and uh, I really wanted to, to recuperate that, which I have. Um, so that's, that's part of why um, it's an experiment for me because I don't usually get things on Kickstarter. I tend to just buy them when they're in the store or what have you. Uh, but it's, it's become part of the cycle of uh, business of gaming, uh, not just miniatures, but types of gaming, uh, electronic gaming too. So it's, I, it feels like a way to generate interest. And I, I think in a way you're sort of performing your that you're doing this business and, and raising. All right. Yeah. That, that's what I've heard from other people, just from a marketing presence. Very few people can get away successfully launching new games, especially as independents, without Kickstarter. Yeah, I think that's true. It's unusual. It's different. Um, but it's true. I mean, Kickstarter is itself a kind of game that people participate in and, and enjoy. There's people who just use that as their game store and they buy a bunch of Kickstarter, uh, they buy into a bunch of projects at a, at a level they're like. Uh, so it winds up being the store and distributor and promoter. Uh, uh, and yeah, otherwise you're, you're lost. I think, especially if it's something, I mean, Warhammer and D&D and stories, but if you're not Warhammer and D&D, you're very well-known name. Well, I think, yeah, well, that's why, like, um, when I think about other Age of Sail games, it's, uh, think of, like, Oak and Iron, and uh, Black Sails. I think like Osprey even had like a little blue book that they did a uh, right. a game right. there. Yeah. Um, which I actually saw on a shelf recently. <laughs> but so it's something that's there um, and the major players don't push it because my, my interest is when I already have a line of miniatures, say like World War II miniatures, and a new World War II skirmish game comes out. For me, it's like, sure, I can spend 20 bucks, throw an extra shelf, uh, extra book on the shelf. Maybe I'll use it, maybe I won't. But for something like, um, and it, it, I wouldn't need to Kickstarter back it. Like someone could just upload that to War Games Vault, maybe do a sale, get like the email sent to you. And it's like, okay, sure. Like a, an Age of Sale one, that's not as prevalent. So does Kickstarter become like uh, a mandatory? Like if you want to get out there, you want to get in front of people's eyes, you're going to need some type of marketing help to, to push this out there. Well, there's other alternatives to Kickstarter like Twitch that are used maybe more for electronic games, but also role-playing. Uh, I, think, I, I think that Kickstarter... Well, again, I'll say that it's like a store. It's a it's a place that people are looking at for new things to appear. Um, the way that I still, but many people cannot, where they live, go to a game store and look at the shelf to see what's new. You know, oh, there's a, there's a new Age of Sale game or there's a new whatever. And um, I, I think that that creates the effect of it being on a shelf and visible. I, I think without without going through that process or sort of being in that window uh, where people are looking, uh, it is it is tough to get looked at with uh, almost any product unless it's directly adjacent to some existing thing. Like this is a a new setting for fate, or it's it's a new setting for. Um, 
Powered by the Apocalypse game or Blades in the Dark. Those have kind of a community that uh, will notice the new product, but uh, otherwise, um, Kickstarter has been good to me. Uh, I I had to guess how much to ask for because it's not easy to sift through Kickstarter and see like slightly crunchy historical miniatures game. How how big is that going to go? So um, <laughs> it's a guess. It's some guesswork, um, but uh, it's. It's been worth doing both financially, but I think in, in the long-term health of the game uh, in terms of people being aware of it. It uh, is, was much harder to, to do that on Kickstarter. Well, I, I think the advantage of yours when I was looking at it is that uh, two ships. So I can play an Age of Sail. So Age of Sail might not be my main game, but there might be someone... I know it's like, hey, do you want to play this game, this game, this game? No, no, not really. But here's an Age of Sale game that doesn't require like a huge box set commitment. Because I think in there you even say it's like you can cut out squares. So you can cut out rectangular pieces of paper, put them on a board, push them around. Um, Not as fun as buying like the Orient or the USS Constitution. (laughs) putting them on the table. No, but uh, that was definitely, I, I think I um, uh, kind of in, enlarged on that theme in talking about the game because I, it, it is off-putting for many miniatures games and you know, many, many that come from a company that I've never heard of or a designer that I've never heard of and it's like, you know, only $84 to get the starting set. Um, I'm probably not going to do that, so or I, I'm going to be hesitant to do that if I need to collect. But I definitely wanted to emphasize that this is, by design, a game about a few ships and one or two, as you say, and they they can be anything. There's people who sell paper ships and on game balls. They're totally. Uh, the right thing for this game um, so there's a there's a level of what you can do from that to some of the best model makers like Langdon or Meridian where it's it's almost getting into the model ship. well I, I'll have to go back in war games vault look for those uh, flat ships since I travel a lot it's like I could I could get your so I was actually looking at your Commodore set just because mm-hmm. um, I like the physical books like put that up on the shelf and the uh you know honestly for the 55 dollars for your commodore um that's probably only 25 bucks more than you'd pay for um any other like game rule book but you get your name in it and then um you know get a couple pictures of ships print them out put them in the book and i'm ready to travel the country and play an age of sale game <laughs> Um, I, I've looked at your uh, Kickstarter here and um, I've commented to some people about uh, on Kickstarter when you have multiple tiers there's that uh, inverse bell curve mm-hmm. where people either buy like just the PDF or they go way to the other end and buy the most expensive option not a lot of takers on the in between yeah, <laughs> and I fit that mold <laughs> I do and I yeah. fit that mold I either buy like okay give me your rule book or I like you know what give me all all of it mm-hmm. Including the uh, the people who are on the between part of the spectrum, um, but yeah, it, it is uh, it is interesting to see, and um, I'm I'm really grateful for the people who bought it at the higher level. I mean, basically, it's compensating for a lot of work, just just a ton of work to make a game like this and uh, make it play right and make it be historically grounded and, and entertaining. Um, so that's, that's what you're, um, 
helping with is you're, you're saying, I support this kind of work, miniatures games. But uh, I also uh, totally want to make it so that, you know, for, for 15 bucks, you pretty much get everything you need. Well, that, I have to say, I you can get in at the lower end. Well, just looking at the art layouts, so you tell that put a lot of effort into that. Yeah, um, the the physical look of the book uh, was an important part. I think I think a more important part in in this go round. I think I'm I'm sort of uh, um, trying to to launch it a little better this time. Um, the one aspect of the physical look of the book is that every chapter has a different header image and a different footer image. And so when you look at the outside of the book, you can kind of easily see where the where the different chapters are based on how they bleed out to the margin. Um, so it's like it's got its own set of uh, color separations for different chapters. Oh, I, I like that touch. Know, that those images kind of carry on through the handouts and the cards and everything else. So I, I feel like I wanted to bring in some of the intelligence that you see in, in Euro games. Like when I sat down with the artist who had never worked with games before, we looked at Wingspan and we looked at how, you know, here's Wingspan, it's a picture of a meadow and a forest and a swamp, but those different uh, areas of the picture are also game, uh, they're play areas, they have different game information in them. So we definitely went for that visual language that you see in a lot of contemporary board games. I hope that that facilitates play. Well, from what I can see, that's, I know when uh, my friends and I judge independent games, we use two things, paper quality and art quality. And say, uh, and what I've seen so far, you haven't cheaped out on anything. Well, um, I've, I have, uh, quote unquote, hired um, Willem van de Velde and Nicholas Pocock and the other, the great artists of the Age of Sail, some of whom were sailors and saw this stuff firsthand. There's such a, because it's a historical game, there's actually a huge repertoire of beautiful images that are in the public domain. So I, um, I, I, I paid those guys in, in having a continuing afterlife for their art. But I, I think it adds a lot to the book. And I, I really wanted I wanted the book to have images in it that were made by people who were there. All right. Well, as we wrap up uh, this podcast, we're getting to our, the countdown clock here's going. Um, is there any last words you want to throw out there before we sign off? You've already made your numbers for your Kickstarter, so this is going to happen. So this is for all those who haven't heard about it who need to pile on. Is there anything you want to say to them? Um, is there anything I want to say? Uh, I, I think the, to, well, to stay on the theme of how the book looks visually, I think having, you know, having the, um, oh, I, I want to say we, this is a very lucky weekend for captaincy because it's being demonstrated at the, uh, Naval War Games convention, um, in Britain, in Yeovil at the, uh, near the Exeter Air Base. So it's, it's in a museum that is part of the Royal Navy. And I'm tremendously excited uh, that, you know, that the game is debuting in a Royal Navy facility. Oh, uh, wow. So yeah, that's, that's, happening. that's impressive. Yeah, that's, yeah, that was kind of a slam dunk for me to, to have that happen. And I, I, think, I, I think the rules are good. I think it's fun, entertaining. I also think the book looks really good, and I feel like people are picking up and picking it up and looking at it. So I think the um, I I think it may be something you can talk people into playing, based on how it looks. That's always a challenge of like you know I I've got squad leader want to play it, and the other person's like well uh, maybe. So I I think uh, we made it look beautiful. You know. <laughs> That that is directly relevant. I I used to work with two guys. They paid uh, advanced squad leader, and uh, at that point, I was only playing Warhammer, 40k, 
and uh, they say, hey, look, here's here's these little, you play manager games, here's advanced squad leader. And it's like looking at it and it's like, this reminds me of 1987. I think I'll pass on this one, guys. Um, yeah, it would, I mean, it, ASL is an incredible work of game design. And uh, I, it, it would benefit from a little bit shining up how it looks. Um, it is what it is, and it's, it's influenced a lot of other games. Uh, so I, I'm always a, a supporter of it, but it's, it's challenging to get somebody on board with a game like that. And uh, I think I've, through, largely through visual uh, language, kind of made a little bit of an on-ramp. Well, John, I, I have to agree with you there. And at this point, as we wrap up, I would wish you luck, but you don't need it. You've already made your numbers, and I think you've made an outstanding and beautifully designed game here. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us on Miniature Wargaming Labs. It has been a and uh, yeah, smooth sailing to everybody. And all, 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 the, all the projects, all the miniatures games, there should be more. <laughs> You never have too many. My wife disagrees with me, but you can never have too many. Yeah, never. <laughs> All right, for everyone listening, go ahead and go check out Kickstarter. Um, go look for Captaincy Second Edition. And if the Kickstarter's closed, head over to War Games Vault, where I look daily for new stuff. And everyone, we'll see you next time. Thanks, James. 